The Canby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quequitlam peoples. It's July 15th, 2022, and there are only 93 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Yes, we're under 100. Final, not final yeah. stretch, but... It, it is perhaps the beginning of the end, though, uh, of this election season. So buckle up, everyone. Things are about to get crazy. <laughs> it's almost the pre-election season, as we'll talk about in a little bit. First, though, I want to make a slight apology to our listeners. When I put up the last episode, I rushed it, and I I noticed there was some drift. This is something annoying that happens in our recording sometimes where I record a little faster than Matthew for something. I think it's to do with the Large Hadron Collider and like those micro black holes take, doing a time shift in my area versus uh, the False Creek area you're in, or it's just the way electronics works more likely. I prefer the time dilation effects, but I didn't sh fix it enough. So it sounded like we were talking over each other for like half the episode. So that probably sucked for you listeners. At any rate, thank you for sticking with us. And if you want to help contribute to us making more of the podcast, please visit us at patreon.com slash Camby report. Yes. Give us some money at patreon.com slash Camby report so we can make them suck less. And do them better. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Camby Report, your source for citizen journalism in Vancouver and its environs. We have a hell of a show for you today because everything has started popping off in the lead up to this election season. It is not a sleepy summer here in Vancouver. It is indeed bananas. So let us begin. Let's start with tweet of the week. This is actually a tweet delete of the week, and it's not an MDG one. It's from a different political Surprisingly. party. Surprisingly. This comes to us via Peter Meisner of A Better City, Vancouver. He was tweeting out some complaints about the high salaries of many people in the city, and a account by the name of Jamie, J-A-Y-M-E, replied to him saying, with a list of the executive compensation for another one of the organizations that operates in the DTES. Can you believe this garbage? And it's people making between $179,000 to $374,000. Peter replies to this saying, Hi, Jamie, can you share which organization? DM okay. Jamie replies, Yeah, it's the Vancouver Police Department, Peter. Clown face. <laughs> and shows the whole table. Peter deleted his tweet. He, That's, yeah. he would have been better off not deleting his tweet. Like, just... Yeah, probably. Own your L. Speaking of L's, Michael Weeb is back in the news. And boy, howdy, uh, did this come out of left field, at least from our perspective, because the case that was supposedly decided last year in the BC Supreme Court has gone on to the BC Court of Appeals, where Michael Weeb has, in fact, lost. This is, for some background, Last year, the petitioners argued in court that Michael Weeb, the Green Party counselor, was in a conflict of interest when he voted on the temporary emergency patio program. In July of 2021, the Supreme Court Justice John Stevens rejected the application to have Weeb removed from office, saying that while the petitioners had established that Weeb had a pecuniary interest in the patio program and had not disclosed it at meetings, and that by voting on the matter, Weeb was in contravention of the Vancouver Charter. Weeb was qualified for a exemption from the restrictions in the Charter because the pecuniary interest that Weeb held was one that he shared with the 3,127 other restaurant and liquor licensees in the city of Vancouver. This is one of the possible exemptions from the conflicts of interest voting regulation that uh, says that if you hold the interest that you're you're apparently voting on with other electors in common and not having a very narrow pecuniary interest yourself you can be exempted from those 
uh, conflict of interest regulations. Yeah, this is why, like, anyone who owns a home on council is allowed to vote for property tax rates. It's why anyone who rents is allowed to set rules for renters in council, because a lot of people are affected by it, and it doesn't directly hit you and only you. Yes. So, what happened next? A three-judge panel of the BC Court of Appeals found that weed interest was not actually shared with those 3,000 other odd licensees, and at most, Weeb's interest was shared with a smaller subset of those, specifically those who were ready and considered themselves able to apply for a permit, that theirs was an interest was different in kind from the broader population of licensees. There was also a further distinguishing of Weeb from the smaller subset of licensees because Weeb was actively pursuing the private benefits that he obviously perceived in the program while simultaneously crafting those benefits as a public official. Now, they haven't gone so far as to disqualify Weeb, uh, but they have kicked the matter back down to the BC Supreme Court to address several other potential defenses that he might have. Personally, I think that he has other defenses and that he will probably prevail on one of those other defenses. The defenses that the contravention was done inadvertently or because of an error in judgment made in good faith or that the pecuniary interest was so remote or insignificant that it cannot be reasonably regarded to influence him. That one, I think, is probably not going to be a successful defense, but the other two, I think, are, are possible. What's next in this? So Weeb has issued a statement through his lawyer, Aurora Faulkner Killam, saying... He remains committed to holding office and serving the citizens of Vancouver. He has always been candid that he assessed the votes in issue as a business owner in good faith and in the belief that he was permitted to participate in the vote consistent with his training and past practice of the city. Um, Wes Musio, who is the lawyer for the petitioners, has said that he was very pleased with the Court of Appeals uh, decision, as I'm sure he would be, and... I, I just want to say that maybe we have been a little too hard on Michael Weeb for taking so many conflicted votes, abstaining from decisions of the city council because he had a perceived pecuniary interest, because this this was not how I expected this to go. Like, I understand the Court of Appeals reasoning here, and we kind of discussed it and went back and forth at it at the time at like, yes, there are 3,000 plus bars and pubs in Vancouver but there are only a certain number that we're looking at temporary patios. So I get that argument. Now, is it, if it's only 400 or if it's only 100, is that... Where, yeah, where do we draw that line? Yeah, where is the line? We don't know that. And that needs to be fleshed out because, you know, these conflict of interest rules are fairly new in the grand scheme of things. And like, this is the Vancouver Charter. I don't know if it's exactly the same for the Community Charter, but this has ramifications for how conflict of interest is treated across the province by... It, it is the same in the uh, Community okay. Charter. Yeah, and so this has effects on how councillors in many other communities where they are more likely to have second jobs, because it's only some of the big cities where it is a full-time job and just some people maintain their business interests, which may mm -hmm. be something they want to not do in the future in Vancouver to prevent this. The other, yeah, I don't want I don't want city councilors having to put things in a blind trust, or I, I think that that's a little ridiculous. I think there has to be some kind of clear set of guidelines that exist for constitutes a public event, public interest, and where your pecuniary interest in a specific business can be said to be specifically generating a conflict of interest as opposed to being held by electors in common so you know obviously everyone who owns the house that uh, can still vote on property taxes but how small does that group have to be what percentage of a, a community does that policy have to affect in order to trigger these conflict of interest resolution uh, and that i think we won't actually get from this decision but I think some work needs to be done there by either the provincial government or uh, by the courts in order to further elucidate what our civic representatives can vote on. The other absurd failing or absurdity, 
let's say, of this entire case is just how long it's taking. This was an early 2021 vote, which means this cloud has been hanging over early 2020. 2020? That's what I thought. Okay. So like half of the term of Michael Weep, he's been under this cloud of debate Mm -hmm. and arguments and fights and back and forth. And we still don't have an answer of whether he is legally allowed to be a counselor. The judge sort of addresses this at the end of the ruling here saying, or the justice saying, I recognize the potential urgency to have this matter resolved prior to the next Vancouver municipal election, after which a disqualification (laughs) remedy may become moot. But this court is simply not in a position to decide whether any of the additional defenses apply. And even if a disqualification remedy were to become moot, the appellants have sought a declaratory remedy against the respondent, which would still be available. Basically, they could have the court wag its finger at him. Yes. So the saga drags on and we will keep you updated as things progress. Uh, The next step is going to be another hearing, presumably in the B.C. Supreme Court. Unless he goes uh, up, but I don't know if he'd go to the Supreme Court of Canada over this. I I doubt that there are there are specific things that would have to be part of this case in order to uh, cause this to go up to the Supreme Court as opposed to back down to the the, the Supreme Court. <laughs> the, there are Supreme Courts on both sides. Can we just call it the Court uh, of Queen's Bench here too? Yeah, that would be nice. But yes, the BC Supreme Court. And what exactly that looks like is, I, I, I don't think this case would, would necessarily meet those criteria, especially since the uh, Court of Appeals has said, like, the BC Supreme Court needs to look at this again to look at the other possible defenses because they didn't rule on them in the original judgment. We'll keep you updated on that. In other Michael Weeb news, Vancouver specials might be coming back. Yeah, he has a motion coming up at this upcoming council. I only did a quick skim through the council agenda, and this is the motion that jumped out most to me. It's the Make Vancouver Specials Great Again motion. Well, technically, the enabling the next generation of Vancouver specials. This is something we've talked about repeatedly on the podcast from Vancouver Autos to just like, hey, you know what would be a great thing to do is create a standardized development plan that developers could just say, we're going to build this. And then it's signed off and it skips months of paperwork with the city and they can get the thing built. Yeah, imagine if something like that existed for laneway houses. It would be a much more expedited process. For a little history, the Vancouver Special is that kind of classic shoeboxy style house that was built primarily between 1965 and 1985. There were a bunch of pre-approved plans that were on hand for city council. They, they were available for relatively inexpensive prices for primarily there were a lot of immigrants, families and multi-generational families that took advantage of this built form. And Michael Weeb wants to bring it back. He's had incredibly short permit times between two and three days, simplified labor needs, standardized local materials, and a shorter building timeline, which benefited both tenants and small builders. He wants to create a catalog of next-generation Vancouver special houses that could be created with pre-approved building forms to allow for expedited permitting and construction processes. One thing that I want to specifically note is that he wants to include two additional build forms in addition to like the single family home or single family detached home. And one of them is the tiny home and another is a multifamily building uh, form of Vancouver special, which I think is excellent. Truly aces. As far as I read it, he wants everything in between there. Like he wants you to be able to go from oh, yes. a backyard shed, tiny home to multifamily buildings. Like let's just get the full spectrum. So it's not just, you know, a standardized single family home, but Everything we need to build should be repeatable and nice. Do it. I think it's a great uh, motion and I hope it goes through. I'm shocked it took this long for anyone to bring it forward. Yeah, it seems honestly like the kind of thing that we really should have been doing all along. But it's here now, so thank you, Michael Weeb. (laughs) Hope you get to see it through. Speaking of the upcoming election and seeing things through the Vancouver District and Labour Council nominations. We talked about them 
recently as they announced the majority of their bids, they have finally named one of their two blank spots. They are supporting the election of Forward Together's Dulcie Anderson, who we talked about is David Eby's constituency assistant. I guess the presumptive next premier of the province he is. But they did not choose to nominate a 10th person. They are holding that open despite Forward announcing three candidates. So too bad to those other two. I've heard rumors Forward might name more, so maybe one of those will get named. Or, I don't know, maybe they could name one of their own union members. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So Stephanie Smith, uh, the Green Party candidate for city council, is a member of the Vancouver and District Labor Council and uh, states very openly on her biography, on her electoral webpage, that she is a proud member of the United Food and Commercial Workers 1518 and the United Steel Workers 2009 member locals. And it just seems odd that the VDLC didn't nominate uh, Stephanie Smith, seeing as how Typically, when someone has been active in that organization, they are supported by the board in in uh, their electoral endeavors. Maybe they're making an assessment as to her electoral viability. Maybe they're making an assessment as to where the Green Party stands on certain issues. But it is surprising. This is also coming along with the fact that no members of the Green Party were endorsed for uh, school board or park board, which was a bit of a shock to see the VDLC do. We have heard some interesting gossip about that that we are going to try and look into regarding the VDLC's nomination process, but we will keep you updated as that progresses and more things come to light. Speaking of breaking gossip, let's talk about Port Coquitlam and the LMLG exit or the POCO exit. Oh, there's no good, there's no good Port Ryan It doesn't this. work. I've tried. Do you know what the LMLGA is, Matthew? Not particularly, but... So you know what UBCM is, right? The Union of BC Municipalities is the umbrella conference of cities, towns, and villages of the province. They come together and they yell at the province for stuff. Yes, it's the I want a unicorn party. To get a resolution to there, you have local versions of that, pretty much. So there's a local, there's a lower mainland local government association. There's one for the Kootenays. I think there's one for Vancouver Island. I don't know them all offhand, but there's various regional LGAs. And they don't just come together to, you know, pass resolutions and ask for stuff. They're actually good networking opportunities for municipalities to generate regional uh, networks to allow councillors and mayors and those kind of politicians to meet one another. They have conferences, all that kind of usual stuff. Yeah, they, they, they share best practices, that kind of yeah. thing. The lower mainland LGA represents Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. So it's everywhere from like Hope to White Rock to Pemberton, I think, is in there. And if you scroll through their membership list right now, there's a glaring absence as Port Coquitlam has disappeared from their members list. Prior to their most recent AGM in May, Port Coquitlam City Councilor Laura DuPont was actually president of the LMLGA, and she no longer is president. And that wouldn't be a scandal because maybe she just didn't want to be president anymore. But the fact her city has quit, seemingly, is quite something. Because as far as I know, a city has never quit their local government association because it seems like the least offensive thing in the world. Yeah, they are truly benign organizations, and I find it very curious that this has happened. Now, why might this have happened? So we don't know officially. As far as I can tell, it wasn't done in a, the decision wasn't made in a public council meeting. It was potentially decided behind a closed council meeting, which Port Coquitlam actually has quite a few of which is its own problem. This is where they don't record public minutes. And if you any councillor speaks about what is discussed in there, they face censure. Laura DuPont, I believe, was actually censured in the past for statements she leaked, allegedly, from 
counsel. Yeah, she had to face a BC Supreme Court case over this in the past. So there's some tension on the Port Coquitlam City Council between, I suspect, Laura DuPont, the mayor, and many other members of council. And now she doesn't have, I'm not going to call it a cushy job by any stretch, but presumably a job she was enjoying, the fact she was president multiple years in a row, and now is not because you can't be president of something you're not a member of. No. So fascinating shenanigans happening over there. We will keep you updated as we learn more, or if we learn more. In more hopeful news, the Surrey Skytrain and Housing is progressing apace. There is a business case estimate for the capital cost of the Surrey Langley Skytrain, and it is coming out to $3.94 billion. Remember when uh, Doug McCallum said that replacing the LRTs with Skytrain would be the exact same amount of money at like $1 billion? Lol. Lol, 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 lol. I mean, he's getting his promises um, complete, <laughs> even if they're a little clunky along the way. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Basically, this includes $2.4 billion for the province's share of the project, a federal commitment of up to $1.3 billion, and the remaining several hundred thousand, uh, sorry, uh, th- the remaining several million dollars coming from the local government. It is a substantial contribution for the local government and especially for, you know, a city the size of Langley, but it is going ahead. This is going to include eight new stations and three new bus exchanges, and they've agreed to collaborate on policies and initiatives to increase density and establish targets for transit-oriented development, which is great news. Yeah, they're going to leverage that recent Bill 16, the Transportation Act, that allows TransLink and public agencies to buy up land to build up housing. So there's going to be a lot of housing built along this SkyTrain, which is what what we love to see here. Yes. That construction has also been going to go forward under a community benefits agreement designed to provide opportunities for locals, Indigenous people, women, and other underrepresented groups. So... Sorry, SkyTrain is moving forward. Yes. What is not moving forward is the logs from Log Jail. While some logs have been restored to Vancouver beaches, a uh, considerable amount of the logs are still incarcerated and uh, endangered. At any rate, we don't have our logs back and we want them back. I am incensed about this issue because it is absolutely ridiculous because of what the park board is saying. A little bit of history for you. The logs, which are, uh, according to the Guardian newspaper of all places, you know, the UK one, uh, a mix of hemlock, cedar, and fir, were a vestige of the city's past when architect Cornelia Oberlander in 1963 called the park board and asked them to put logs on the beaches as seating instead of burning them basically there were a lot more log runs that caused logs to wash ashore on vancouver beaches at the time and those logs were burned on the beaches now the logs and since 1963 the logs were placed on the beaches to provide seating in the pandemic they rounded them up and put them inside a fence in the fear that they would encourage crowding and gathering and they didn't want people sitting on the beach to spread covid and many are still sitting inside a fence at, that you can see on the beach. And it is affectionately known yeah. as log jail. So Vancouver is somewhat unusual in that it has all these logs on its beaches. When I was in Australia studying, I went to the beach and I asked them, what, where are your logs? And everyone looked at me like I had two heads. And I'm just like, but logs are an essential characteristic of a beach. And Apparently, that is lunacy other places in the world. But here, here it is absolutely essential. Vancouver Parks Board has said in a statement that, quotes, in light of several learnings that arose, end quote, from the pandemic, they want to keep the number of logs on Vancouver beaches down and has opted to only return a handful to beaches because the beach is easier to clean, has less garbage. Uh, and less discarded waste on on the beach, which is 
like fine, I guess, but of course it does. Of course there's less garbage because there are fewer logs because there are fewer users of the beach. The logs provide the places for people to use the beach. Otherwise it is a vast expanse of sand uh, that you just have to, you know, find an empty spot on. The logs are the thing that makes the beach like very usable and accessible to people. Uh, So yeah, there are fewer users now. So of course there's going to be fewer waste. I would expect that if you removed all the amenities from a city park, there would be fewer, you know, pieces of garbage in that city park because there are fewer users in it. The board also, I think, claimed it increased safety. This is just the idea that cops can drive around and look down the beach and yell at people and over-police the beaches more, which raises its own kind of problems. Like, what kind of crimes were people doing behind the logs? They were probably using some drugs, maybe drinking. These are not things that need to be policed. These are things we could just decriminalize or just churn the other eye most of the time. Yes. So this is a call to action. Go tweet at the park board, email your park board commissioners and tell them that you want the beach logs restored to pre-pandemic levels as they are an essential characteristic of the Vancouver beach. The park board's also in the news still over the continual debate of the Mount Pleasant pool, which it's amazing how many episodes we've talked about this pool on this podcast for. Yeah, especially for how little progress is being made towards actually completing it. But the trees, Matthew, they might replace the tree. They won't replace any trees, but they might replace some grass with concrete. And that would be bad. Oh, my God. So basically, in late June, the Vancouver Park Board voted to reallocate $11.5 million of its $539 million budget in the 2023 to 2026 capital plan the city's plan for investments on infrastructure and amenities to the planning and building of a new outdoor pool in Mount Pleasant Park. They've asked city council to come up with the remaining costs, which could range from half a million dollars to three and a half million dollars, according to John Cooper. But that could be as high as uh, a grand total, including that $11.5 million of $20 million. The next day, Council said, no, thank you, no pool. This is so frustrating. Council voted 10 to 1 against this. We have been generally supportive of the Mount Pleasant pool. There is a dearth of pools in Vancouver, uh, especially compared to Montreal and Toronto, which are just replete with them. There are only only a few, one of which, the Kitsilano pool, pool was heavily damaged in a windstorm earlier this year and had to be closed. So, you know, in in terms of resiliency and public amenity in the city, there should be more outdoor pools. Mount Pleasant pool was, I think, incorrectly removed in the first place because thinking that the Mount Pleasant community center could replace the, the outdoor pool as a like refuge as a heat island or that the amenities were roughly equivalent I was, I think, a bit erroneous. I, I am disappointed with city council for making this decision. The reason Sarah Kirby Young gave to CBC News following the decision was that we're hearing as the city gets more dense how important that green space is for livability. It's just not that large of an area there. We heard the majority of the community really wants to keep it as park access, which is amazing because we have a democratically elected park board that is supposed to be responsive to the local community. And the city council has just essentially overruled the park board, making their point irrelevant, which, you know, we already knew was the case, but it's just like, why even have a park board? And that is a question that hopefully we will be able to discuss uh, democratically in this upcoming election. Why have a park board indeed? Uh, it seems like this is one of the few reasons why we might want to consider it. But still, if you're not going to listen to them, if you're not going to heed the elected representatives, then why even have it? They've obviously done their consultation. They've obviously engaged with the community. And having a couple of people who are either against funding this project for, you know, purely 
expenditure reasons or who are truly attached to that green space, which I, you know, I call bullshit on because there's still going to be plenty of green space. It, it seems a little fallacious to me. Moving back to the election, uh, there is shadow money. Yeah, every so often people flag or I'll see some like new organization advertising on Facebook. And this was shared in our Slack and we discussed it a little bit there, but I didn't dig into it enough. And a few people also saw it on Twitter. Justin McElroy tweeted out and I saw someone else actually pull up a frame by frame. Views of Vancouver, a page with hundred with 18,000 followers, has put a bunch of money, several thousand dollars actually, I think $8,000 over the past period of time to really run a number of ads critical of the mayor saying crime is out of control, just really going at it. And when you do a shot-by-shot comparison of the website of Views of Vancouver, and this was done by Spencer Powell on Twitter at Bam Bam Mon, you can see that their website looks identical to the NPA's website, like copy-pasted, color scheme, shape of the petition entry pages, everything is almost the same. They just changed some of the words. And if you go deep enough into the Views of Vancouver Facebook page, you can see that they like the NPA Facebook page. So presumably there is a connection there. Yeah, I mean, they, they have suggested that John Cooper should be elected mayor, which I think is a bit of a fringe belief at this point. But uh, perhaps it is time that we review the election rules for spending in municipal elections. This may ring a bell to some of you who are with us for the last election. The spending that was undertaken by exterior forces in support of the Hector Brenner candidacy prior to the election actually being uh, called. This is very reminiscent of that. We are, however, about to enter the pre-campaign period, which is going to run from July 18th to September 16th of this year. Yeah, I think new following last year. This is partially a response to the, you know, anger over the billboards last time. Yes. During this period, third party advertisers and parties must follow certain rules, including including your name and contact information on all your ads. You have to register with Elections BC, in which case you get put on a list. There are currently four organizations listed as third-party sponsors in the entire province. That's the Beach Grove Advocacy Group, Darpan Sharma, Darpan Shama, West Kootenai Labor Council, and Women Transforming Cities International Society. So, Views on Vancouver is not a registered third party, so their ads will probably stop on Monday. Yes, or something is going to happen. Uh, though those, those ads are, yeah, definitely going to be illegal come Monday, unless they are completing the registration currently their names are redacted for privacy on their you know who is inquiries we are going to keep you updated if they continue running ads and let you know who is behind them if we are able to find that out in other electoral deep dive considerations one of our favorite reddit threads is back that's right it's charts on a podcast oh no the story them in your mind the original was j smooth seven but two years ago why is our city council so gridlocked where they did w nominate coordinate graph to figure out where on the political spectrum all the different candidates were going and they did a lot of comparison of who votes with who the most and the least they based a lot of this on work we've talked about on dividing city council onto the traditional left-right spectrum, but also the urbanist versus conservationist angle. Mobius Peveril does an update to this to see what's changed in the past two years using the 3,400 additional votes taken. And the answer is actually not that much. To quote the summary, since 2018, Stewart has become more conservationist, Kirby Young more urbanist, and Fry and Carr have flipped. That's about it, really. The councillors are very self-consistent. And by Fry and Carr flipped, they became uh, slightly more urbanist, I believe. Slightly. They, they did retain their positions relative to each other, so I'm not exactly sure what he means by flipped there. But they are 
all very self-consistent, and it does explain why City Council has been so gridlocked. We will link to this in the show notes. It is an excellent chart and shows you where the, the, the councillors are relative to each other. One thing that you can do as a thought exercise is try drawing lines that come up with a majority on council and think of what types of resolutions would create those divisions that would allow you to create this sort of functional majority. It is very difficult to do because you end up with very unusual groupings of councillors because certain councillors, and I think of particularly Fry and Carr uh, on the Green Party side, and then Kirby Young, Dominato, and Bly on the, I guess, A Better City Vancouver now side, are, are arrayed in such a way that if you get one of them, you're probably going to get all of them, which is why you end up with these votes where only Gene Swanson and Colleen Hardwick are voting against, or you get votes where all of the ABC people or Frying Carr are opposed, and therefore the motion fails. Yeah, great analysis. We'll link it in the show notes. Speaking of ABC, they have another council candidate as they seem to get incredibly bullish on city council running. I think this is now their seventh candidate, meaning if they won, they would have a super, quite the majority on council. Mike Klassen, relatively prominent local commentator, has joined the slate as the next one hoping to sit on city council and yell about crime. Yes, Mike Klassen once ran for city council in 2011 when he lost by 700 votes. He came remarkably close to getting that city council seat. He decided to not run in the subsequent elections and is now signed on with ABC and the Kensim team. Over in West Vancouver, group we talked about in the past, CivitX, which had seemingly created a political party, but they never registered with Elections BC that had existed to promote Nigel Malkin for mayor, he has announced he's going to run for council instead and has endorsed mayoral challenger Mark Sager. Yes. So CivicX was a organization that advocated for secure electronic e-voting by West End residents on significant community decisions. Basically, it was an organization to empower NIMBYism, and I hate it. Thanks. It, it's horrible. We did a whole um, dig through into it quite a while back. I think Nigel actually listened to the podcast and yelled at us on our comment thread on our page a while after I missed it, unfortunately. But yeah, looks like the yeah, race is shaping position up. Has not, our position has not changed in particular. <laughs> it looks like the race is shaping um, up in West Vancouver between, I wouldn't even say there's ever been like a super urbanist you know, constituency in West Van. It is West Van, but, you know, is any development okay, I guess, is the question they will be facing on the ballot. Yeah, it's the question of whether you put five extra floors on Park Royal or not. And this organization would very strongly suggest not. Out towards my neck of the woods in Port Moody, there is a new candidate for city council, Haven Lubriki. She has actually been quite involved in Port Moody Council for a while, not directly on council, but on a number of the planning boards. She's a big supporter of responsible growth, noting that the city should stick to its agreed-to growth plan of 50,000 people, not exceeding it. Uh, not one person more. We'll close no the babies. gate. We'll close the roads when that happens. <laughs> Port Moody's about 35,000 people right now, so there is room to get there. And I think already the growth projections for 2041 have gone to like 55,000 for Port Moody. But this really frames development as one that, quote, focuses on parkland, the local economy and community infrastructure, rather than making sure people have homes. And all those other things, yes. which no one is against. Lubrecki is also m probably the most prominent across BC as being the woman who Rick Glumack proposed to from the floor of the legislature several months ago in quite the moment. I mean, it was cute. Yeah. Yeah. That's but nice. it, it does show some like 
connections between the political levers and, you know, even if some parts of the provincial NDP, like David Eby, might go harder on building. I don't know Rick Loopmax's personal position on development, but at least his fiance seems a little less bullish. Moving on south, New Westminster is looking to drop its royal city moniker. Yeah, council had a vote this past week where they passed a motion to update the city's logo and phase out the use of the Royal City moniker. This was with Councillor Puckmeyer opposed. There will be a public consultation and staff will need to plan out how that looks. But the idea here is to become a 21st century city that doesn't lean into its, you know, original capital. Like, New West has other things going for it these days, I would say. Yeah, it... It certainly does. I, I, I am interested to see how the divisions break down on this. Uh, Councillor Peckmeyer said that this was a bit of a hand grenade on the way out by uh, Mayor Cote, uh, which I think is hilarious. And I am always here for a little bit of council drama. <laughs> so I am going to watch this uh, with bated breath to see if there's any more fireworks going on on New West City Council prominent commentator from the Kwantlen First Nation, Robert Jago, was quite critical of this decision on his own Twitter thread. He said this was done in the name of reconciliation, but his First Nation, the Kwantlen Nation, has always been connected to New West and actually called it Sam Kwantlen originally with Sam translating to Royal. And so he thinks there's a value in keeping it as Royal City, perhaps, or maybe to rename things Sam, but to do this without even recognizing the Kwantlen. And I think there's some long-standing grievance about who the city of New West recognizes as the traditional territories there. We'll link to Robert's thread and you can go through more of that, but it'll be curious to see what comes out of that consultation, particularly as they speak to local indigenous stations. Back in Vancouver, and I'm going to put this under, file it under, duh, the team president, or rather the, the team party's president resigned after learning what the team party stands for. Basically, the president of Team Vancouver, Barge, has stepped down over concerns of the party in the upcoming municipal elections is being seen as anti-development, which, in fairness, it is. So he sent this email to supporters saying he basically wasn't confident that their NIMBY positions could prove successful for the party. He's still supportive of the party. He's still a member, he says, as well, but he just doesn't want to be president anymore. Yeah, and that, I mean, <laughs> sure, but the whole raison d'etre of, of team is to be anti-development. And sure, they're needs to be an outlet for that on city council. But, you know, I, I am certainly not one that hopes that they prevail. Team is, of course, being headed by Colleen Hardwick, the ex-NPA councillor who is now running for mayor. Well, and finally, in stories from the city of Vancouver, a almost instantaneous flip-flop as it's announced that staff do not recommend the Fountainhead Pub, the popular one on Davy Street, be allowed to double its size. And this goes to council fairly quickly. And council's like, staff, you're dumb. This is the worst so decision ever. Basically, uh, there is a uh, space to the west of the Fountainhead Pub that has been vacant for many years. The Fountainhead Pub has bought it, and they have applied for a basically doubling of their capacity from 111 to 255 uh, and the number of outdoor seats from 64 from 36. They, they asked city staff for the permits and all required paperwork in order to get this done. City staff rejected it. Basically, the city divides liquor licenses into classes from one to six. Currently, the Fountainhead has the Class 2 license, which indicates that they have between 66 and 150 seats. And under the proposed expansion, they would become a Class 3 license. Under a city policies that were passed in 2005, 
Two class three licensed establishments cannot be within 100 meters of each other. Uh, this would be the case with the Numbers nightclub, which is right across the street. The uh, Alliance of Beverage, Able BC, which is the Alliance of Beverage Licensees and Establishments got involved uh, lobbying for the Fountainhead to be able to expand. And they said that staff's recommendation was based on an outdated and ill-considered policy, which would double licensing costs, increase delays by up to a year, and needlessly restrict one of the original pubs in the heart of Davie Village from recovering financially from the pandemic. It is a colossal waste of everyone's time and money. I agree. So it sounds like this policy dates back to the Larry Campbell era. Like, 2005's quite a while ago. Definitely feels like it needs a good update because... Like, you have a popular destination for nightlife, right? Limiting yes. yourself to one good, you know, large establishment per block feels unnecessary for that part of Davy. So I can maybe understand some of the motivation for the policy, even if I don't fully agree, but there's this is definitely one of those places where public outcry was like, this is dumb. There was literally no one in favor of this other than like staff who were like, well, the policy we have before us says this can't happen. So it can't happen. The and neighborhood was in favor. I, I don't, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want city staff disregarding their own policies on a whim, Yeah, but I do want them to uh, bring policies that are outdated or ill-considered to city council for uh, review from time to time in, in periodic policy reviews. And, and I'm hoping that, that that continues to happen. But this this is one of those policies that now City Council, after their unanimous vote approving the Fountainhead's expansion, they have been asked to review for the future. Enjoy the greater nightlife on Davy. This probably won't be done in time for Pride, unfortunately. No, and it's but. it's one of those things where like Vancouver in general has a problem with uh, how easy it is to open a liquor establishment. We earned that no fun city moniker. And like, you know, in visiting other cities, there are a lot more small bar bars uh, around, but it's incredibly difficult to open a small bar in Vancouver. And so sometimes all you have the ability to do is expand current establishments it would be very wrongheaded for city council to impose the doubling of licensing costs to establishments that want to expand, especially given how few places relatively Vancouverites have to go and relax. And this isn't even a universal BC thing. Just for one quick aside before we close off the episode with the Vancouverata, on July 4th, Coquitlam's newest, well, one of its newest bylaws came into effect, which is the Drinking and Parks Bylaw of Coquitlam. I don't think we've talked about this on the show, but my city now allows you to just drink in any park except for a couple that are co-owned by the school board. This includes a park that's near me that is literally just a playground off the street. You could you could have your beers right on the playground, I guess. The city is going to be putting up some signs. They also opened up a couple plazas. There was some question at council when it was debated, like, should we do a trial like Port Coquitlam and all these other cities are doing? And they just went... No, let's just let's just do it. And good for your city, right? And so that is now the law in Coquitlam. Bring your beer to Lafarge Lake, bring it to Mundy Park. We have amazing parks in Coquitlam that you can drink at. We don't need to draw ridiculous lines around them. Yes, speaking of drinking in parks, at Jericho Beach is going to be hosting the site of this episode's Vancouverada. We Always end out the show with a uh, little tidbit from Vancouver's history. And this week it is quite topical. It's the Vancouver Folk Festival. The Vancouver Folk Festival was founded in 1978 by Mitch Podolak and Colin Gorey of the Winnipeg Folk Festival. The Vancouver Social Planning Department's Ernie Fladell and Fran Fitzgibbon and its Heritage Festival through its Heritage Festival Society and Gary Crystal, the original coordinator of the first festival, hosted it in Stanley Park from the 11th to the 13th of August, 1978. In its second year, the festival was relocated to its current home at Jericho Beach Park and rescheduled to the third weekend of July, when it remains to this day. 
This is, of course, so that Vancouver fits into the folk festival circuit that occurs in Western Canada, so people can travel around visiting various folk festivals and performing at them. However, Vancouver Folk Festival has long been known as a place that doesn't just promote a North American folk, but a wide variety of folk music. I am a huge fan of it, and and a large part of this is because of Gary Crystal continuing as the co-coordinator and the artistic director. By the early 1980s, the festival presented 60 to 70 acts each year in a multi-stage format of daytime workshops and evening concerts, generally avoiding the promotion of star performers, but attendance still averages about 30,000 people annually, making this one of Canada's most successful folk festivals. One year, for example, they focused on Czechoslovak music, folk music, which is just amazing. It was also the first festival in Canada to acknowledge feminist music as a distinct contemporary folk genre in 1980. Uh, I am going to be at the folk festival uh, slinging beers in the beer garden as I volunteer for it every year. And so if you are going to be attending the folk festival, please come down and say hi. I would love to see you out there. It is, quite frankly, my favorite part of the summer, uh, and I look forward to it every year. It's been a rough two years having the folk festival suspended due to the pandemic, and I am so happy to see it back. Sounds like a great time. I don't think I've ever actually made it. I don't have anything against folk music, but I think I've just prioritized the... I am one of those people who's attracted by the star names to a musical event or when mm. I did attend. And so folk fests were always like, I don't know any of these names at all. I'm sure it's a lovely time, but who am I going there to see? And I, that's just because I think about it wrong. And maybe I'll get into folk fests in a couple of years. I'm obviously not going this weekend. I've had COVID this last week, so that's been <laughs> miserable. Do not recommend. I, I have a yeah, <laughs> I have a very different approach when it comes to folk festival in that I never ever look at the lineup before going in, uh, and I just let serendipity guide me as I wander around between the stages, finding music that I like with my program and highlighting the people that I am particularly enamored with to go and buy their albums later. You can also buy the albums in the, the festival tent, but that's all CDs and who has a uh, CD drive nowadays. If they had little thumb drives with their music on it, I would totally buy one of those too. But I think it is just a truly excellent event and I am so happy to be a part of it. I hope you get a chance to get out to the folk festival and even if you're just going to go onto the sadly log-bereft Jericho Beach, which is a, a place where you can enjoy the folk festival for free. It's not the same as being really in the festival, but you can oft often hear the music from the main stage or stage number four. This brings us to an end of another episode of the Canby Report. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in a couple weeks, and, you know, enjoy your summer. For Leg & Boot Media, I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good day.